Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly update on the big issues in defence and foreign affairs. This week, Britain promises to meet its moral obligation to Afghans at risk as international troops leave the country. They really are on top of the hit list of, of the Taliban, and they will take their revenge on anyone. Uh, who is associated with working with the British. Why Denmark's in the doghouse with some of its European allies? Why is it taking so long to improve the complaint system inside the armed forces? If people are saying that they feel they're treated a certain way, but don't feel confident enough to let the system help them, that to me is a real problem. And is it time to change the way we think about the wars of the past? Let's stop talking about D-Day, but let's talk about Burma. Let's talk about the two African divisions in Burma. Let's talk about the bulk of the Indian army that fights in Burma. You know, we need to think more about how we tell the story of, of the First World War. As international troops prepare to leave Afghanistan, the UK says it will meet a moral obligation to thousands of Afghans who worked with British forces in the country. This week, ministers announced plans to rapidly resettle hundreds of people together with their families in the UK. It represents a significant expansion of existing schemes after a lengthy campaign to protect interpreters and others who, by working with coalition forces, made themselves targets for the Taliban. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says Britain will do the right thing. The Western powers leaving uh, Afghanistan. The threat is increasing and has increased uh, with uh, targeted attacks against Afghans by the Taliban. So we think it's the right thing to do to stand by these people. They, they sacrificed a lot to look after us and now we're going to do the same. Already this year, at least five Afghan interpreters have been killed. This man worked with British forces in Helmand for four years. He came to the UK in 2015, but it took more than five years to get his wife to safety with him. Very, very dangerous and it's very risky for them. Although I'm lucky I got relocated and resettled in the UK, but people who are left behind in Afghanistan, it's very, very scary and it's very dangerous for them. It's a life without any hope, and it's a life full of fear. A big fear is this, that am I going to be the next targeted killing? The Sulla Alliance group was set up to campaign for Afghan interpreters who worked with British forces. It was co-founded by Ed Aitken, a former army officer who served two tours in Helmand. He welcomes the move, but says Britain could still do more. This is a vast improvement on, on where we were. However, we're still concerned that there are a number of groups uh, within this community who are going to be excluded from potential resettlement to the UK. And that's still something that we are pushing hard to ensure that you know, this does not become our Saigon, because we really are at risk of there being a bloodbath and having blood on our hands if we don't make every effort to ensure that as many interpreters as possible are relocated to the UK because they really are on top of the hit list of, of the Taliban and they will take their revenge on anyone uh, who is associated with working with the British. Who are you concerned about missing out and why? This is a, a complex question and there are a number of uh, groups that we are concerned about. First and foremost are those interpreters who were terminated. About 1,000 
interpreters out of the 3,000 or so interpreters who we employed over the course of the campaign were terminated. The MOD insisted this was always for legitimate reasons. However, we have evidence which suggests that these were not always for legitimate reasons. And for example, it was used just as a a form of HR management. Other groups that uh, we're concerned about, for example, are those interpreters who uh, have fled Afghanistan already and are now caught up in the asylum systems of third countries, such as in Turkey or uh, Greece. And currently, they are also not allowed to apply for relocation uh, to the UK under this scheme. So there are an, a number of groups who really need to, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that these guys are, are swept up uh, in this scheme. In the light of what you say, then, is it fair to say that you would want any interpreter who worked with British forces, no matter how they were employed or how their employment ended, to be allowed this resettlement? Yeah, you know, we absolutely do, Kate. We we don't want this to um, be a stain on on our nation. You know, there are plenty of examples in history, such as when the French uh, pulled out of Algeria, when the Portuguese pulled out of um, Angola. There's lots and lots of history which says this will become a stain on our nation. And uh, we absolutely believe that there is nothing that any interpreter could have done which deserves a death sentence from the Taliban, which leaving them behind will will certainly result in. There's an irony in this, isn't there? Because the idea of invading Afghanistan 20 years ago was to make the country safe for Afghans. Now, as we prepare to leave, we're evacuating thousands of people who aren't safe there. Yeah, I mean, that is that is very true. And that irony, I hope, is not lost on, on the policymakers who made those decisions. But um, I think... We went there as, as soldiers. We did the jobs that we were asked to do. And the Afghan interpreters stood side, side by side, shoulder to shoulder with us as we did those jobs. Um, to, to abandon them would be grossly neglectful of us and I think would reduce our moral integrity as a, as a nation. Ed Aitken speaking to me earlier will joining me today is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. And Michael, he said, a risk of blood on our hands, according to Ed Aitken, who thinks hundreds of Afghan interpreters won't be covered by this programme. Yes, and that's one of the problems. I mean, we have this in, in Bosnia as well, of course, where a lot of interpreters work for British forces, that because of the nature of the employment, some people um, are interpreters just for a short time. And as he said, some are terminated, taken off the books for various reasons, some good, not so good. And some people get tied up in their own asylum claims. Some of them flee and, and so on. So it's a very big group of people, all of whom have got different circumstances, most of whom have got families. And what the Sulher Alliance is saying, I think, in my view, quite rightly, is, look, you've just got to put a blanket over all of these people. You're talking about a few thousand people, not, not three or four million. You've got to put a blanket over everybody because the cost to them and to our honour as a nation is so great if it turns out that helping the British when they go to do a job abroad, it becomes a sort of a, a prolonged death sentence. And the UK announcement came a few days after the US confirmed it would evacuate close to 20,000 Afghans who worked with American forces. It's taken a very long time for countries to fully recognise this obligation. Yes, I'm afraid it has. What we've had for many years in Britain is that ministers have all, always said the right things, but the Home Office has been very wary. They've, they've worried that the system would be misused, that people would lie to, to get under the, under the wire, as it were. And, I mean, full credit, I think, in this case, to Ben Wallace and to the present government 
they look as if they've taken this on in the way that some people were saying 20 years ago we should have taken it on in Bosnia. Of course, it's a big logistical challenge on top of the withdrawal and a big social challenge too to integrate thousands of people from Afghanistan into British society. Well, it may be, but I'm, I'm not so certain about that because if you think about it, anyone, particularly in Afghanistan, anyone who is a translator who speaks good enough English to be a translator, and not just functional English, but good English, those people are professional in the first place. So most of them are teachers or doctors, and they become interpreters because they can earn some money that they can't earn as doctors or teachers. And so most of these people, by definition, um, and their families are, are professional people. They'll fit in pretty well, I think. Michael, stay with us. Well, next week, we'll take a more detailed look at the international withdrawal from Afghanistan with three months to go to the deadline imposed by President Biden. This is Zitrap. Back in 2013, secrets leaked by Edward Snowden revealed the German Chancellor Angela Merkel's phone had been tapped by American spies. Spying on friends is unacceptable, was her response at the time. Well, now fresh reports suggest it wasn't just America keeping tabs on her. An investigation in Denmark has revealed that country's secret service helped the US to spy on a host of European politicians, allowing the NSA to tap into Danish internet connections. Well, among the targets, Pierre Steinbrück at the time, leader of Germany's main opposition party. Bluntly spoken, I'm not astonished because I think it happened several times that the NSA and I guess a lot of other national intelligence services try to spy on uh, personalities of befriended countries. It appears to me a little bit crazy because in June 2013, I had the opportunity to meet President Obama when he visited Berlin. And one of my issues I addressed to him were the activities of the NSA. And, well, he did not really answer to me. It was a little bit like that I tried to grasp for a bar of soap. It slipped away. But to know now that at the same time when I had this talk with President Obama that the NSA uh, wiretapped me, it appears to me now a little bit crazy, to a certain extent scandalous. Well, the journalist Jonathan Marcus is a former defence and diplomatic correspondent for the BBC. He's on the line now. Uh, Jonathan, so it wasn't just Germany. The claim is that between 2012 and 2014, Denmark was helping the US to spy on political leaders in France, Sweden and Norway. Indeed, it's a kind of curious revival of a story that maybe perhaps some people have forgotten, but it really was extremely tense at the time. And relations between Germany and the United States, between uh, uh, Angela Merkel's government and the Obama administration were severely strained. Uh, the top CIA official uh, in Berlin had to be uh, removed and was expelled and he was sent uh, back to Washington. Of course, the interesting thing is why it's all been revived now. Uh, this comes from uh, an investigation by the uh, Danish uh, public uh, media service and uh, other journalistic bodies. Uh, they've really demonstrated that Denmark had a pivotal role in all of this, assisting the United States, uh, in large part, we think, because of key uh, undersea cables that make landfall uh, in Denmark. Uh, and the Danish uh, intelligence services and their American counterparts had developed over time extremely uh, close relations. The French president Emmanuel Macron says such behaviour is not acceptable between allies. The current Danish defence minister agrees. Why do you think predecessors were so keen to help the US spy on European powers? 
Well, look, I don't want to be rude to the French, but uh, I'm sure the French and others are also trying to gather uh, intelligence more broadly, even uh, on uh, so-called friendly nations. Look, there are legitimate reasons for wanting to know uh, what governments are thinking, what privately is being said and so on, uh, you have to weigh this up. Think of Germany, for example, its whole uh, energy relationship with Russia, uh, the controversial Nord Stream pipeline and so on. There might be many things the Americans uh, and others would want to know about. The problem, of course, is striking a balance. We all know it goes on. Uh, when it's found out, it's deeply uh, embarrassing. But it's a question of trying to strike that balance between clandestine uh, gathering of information and the uh, upfront legitimate relationships between uh, countries that have to move forward between allies uh, on a stable basis. Well, let's bring in Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, the reporters on this say they can't establish whether the Danish government had approved this cooperation with the NSA or was even aware of it, which implies intelligence services are often operating outside the full control of their governments. Yes, and the, the American NSA, the National uh, Security Agency, was certainly operating on its own in these years we're talking about, 2012 to 2014. It was more or less out of control. And that is what uh, the Edward Snowden allegations were all about, which the Obama administration basically admitted. And the Obama administration admitted that the NSA had behaved illegally according to American law. Now, the NSA was getting cooperation from FE, the, the Danish agency, and from our own intelligence services who were not operating illegally according to our laws. So, you know, Snowden didn't reveal anything that was illegal here, but he did reveal things that were illegal in the United States. And the NSA during these years had this, this philosophy, collect it all, collect everything, on the assumption that some of it will turn out to be very useful. And that was the problem, that I think it's quite unlikely that the Danish government was fully aware of the FE's collaboration in wiretapping, tapping, as Jonathan says, the undersea cables, uh, that the NSA wanted them to do. We do the same. I mean, a lot of other undersea cables come into Land's End. Uh, a lot of the transatlantic cables come in there, and it so happens that we're in a very good position to tap into them, which we do. So would it be uh, naive then to imagine notionally friendly nations aren't always trying to get an edge on each other by fair means or foul? They're always interested in what the other is thinking. Of course they are. And if you look, read uh, Peter Wright's book, Spycatcher, going back to the 1960s, he said, I mean, he's a very unreliable XMI5 operative, or was, um, but he claimed that, we, that he bugged and burgled his way around the embassies of London, uh, particularly the French embassy, to find out what they were thinking. That may or may not be true. But the, the, the fact is that even things which may turn out to be legal, if you, if you put a warrant together, we used to do this when I was running an independent review for the government of, of surveillance in 2014, you can put a warrant together to say we can spy on Angela Merkel, and that could be legal in British terms. But any politician would say, don't be so stupid. The, you know, the risks of doing that far outweigh any advantage you may get. So, you know, take it off the table, even if it's legal, even if it's part of the process. Gentlemen, stay with us. A year ago, the outgoing service complaints ombudsman for the armed forces told this programme that fundamental changes were needed to make the system efficient, effective and fair. Nicola Willems said that across her five years in the role, she repeatedly heard the same explanations from personnel for not coming forward with concerns about their treatment. My life will be made very difficult if I make a complaint. It will take far too long. 
once I make the complaint and nothing ultimately will be done about it. I'm very, very disappointed that after all this time, despite what we as an office have said to people about encouraging them to make complaints, that those figures are still so distressingly high. Well, a year later, her successor is highlighting the same problems in her first annual report. Mariette Hughes says there's still a lot to do to reduce delays in the system and improve confidence. She's been speaking to our reporter, Carla Prater. So the annual report for this year sets out again that unfortunately the system is not yet effective, efficient or fair. The key things for me that really cause me concern are the delays inherent in the system and also the levels of trust and confidence that service personnel have in the system. And those two are really intrinsically linked for me because until and unless the system starts to work better, our service personnel won't feel confident in using that system. And when we look at those delays, you know, currently fewer than half of service complaints are being resolved within the 24 weeks target, which is simply not good enough. When are we going to see that change and really what's stopping that change from happening more quickly? One of the things we have to bear in mind is statistical time lags. So whenever we do an annual report, we are reporting on the cases that have been closed in year. So necessarily those are cases that were started quite a long time ago. And so those stats don't really reflect what is happening on the ground right now. So the cases that are picked up now, that are started now, if we can improve those, the situation for the personnel going through those complaints will be vastly improved. But we may not see the result of that until an annual report sort of two, three years down the line. We're going to continue monitoring that work with interest and we're going to keep providing that independent oversight and feedback. We've seen female and black, Asian and minority ethnic personnel are again overrepresented in the number of complaints. We said that 27% of complaints were about bullying, harassment and discrimination. Do you think the military has a serious cultural problem about the way it treats people? It's difficult to say whether or not there is actually a cultural problem without being deep into it. And obviously, my office only sees complaints through a very, very small lens. We see a very small proportion of what is going on. But I share the same concerns that my predecessor, Nicola, had around the overrepresentation of female and black, Asian, minority, ethnic personnel within that system. And I share the concerns around the number of bullying, harassment and discrimination complaints that we're seeing. We have to be able to pursue a system where anyone who reports they've experienced that sort of behaviour feels safe and confident in raising it and that the service complaint system is something that will support them through it and will help them get the right resolution. If people are saying that they feel treated a certain way but don't feel confident enough to let the system help them, that to me is a real problem and it's something I would like for us to address. 40% of complaints were about the management of people's careers. What's going wrong there? Career management in the armed forces is very different to every other sector out there in the world. It's experience driven, but it's also very process driven. So you're incredibly reliant on the content of your yearly appraisal reports in order to be able to promote upwards. So in terms of complaints handling, that to me is a perfect storm of things that will cause people to perhaps feel dissatisfied and want to raise a complaint. So it's not really surprising to me that we see that proportion of complaints in the system. What will be your priorities now you're in office? What I'm most pleased to see is a real desire from the people who are handling service complaints to make it better. The key themes to me are 
firstly around our own service, so around providing an efficient and high quality service to complainants. So are we being efficient? Are we being effective? Are we being fair? And the second one for me is raising awareness of my office throughout the armed forces so that more people know what the Ombudsman is and know what we're for. Sharing knowledge, sharing tips and tricks, and really sort of providing some on the ground assistance to help make those, you know, incremental improvements as we go on, as well as looking at the wider structural changes that the system needs. Marriott Hughes speaking to Carla Prater. Well, Professor Michael Clark and Jonathan Marcus are still with me. Uh, Michael, year after year, we get told that the people at the top of the military are committed to making things better. But then year after year, this report calls the complaint system inefficient, ineffective and unfair. Yes, and I mean, Marriott Hughes was saying, as you know, that Nicola Williams, her predecessor, made a series of recommendations, and she's not going to add to those recommendations because they've still got to be implemented. And although she's presiding over the fact that the system is getting better at the metrics, they're dealing with complaints better and more quickly and more certainly, and so on. But they've got a bigger problem here because the MOD is trying to recruit armed forces with new skills, with new profiles. And as she said, I mean, 40% of the complaints are about career management. And so people are joining the armed forces now with different expectations for their careers than would have existed in the armed forces 20 odd years ago. So the MOD has got to get hold of this in a much bigger way. I mean, 2000 odd complaints are made every year. The system is only able to take up about a third of them because the others don't don't qualify under their terms of reference. And of course, so a lot of people in the services will say, I tried the complaint system and they wouldn't take it up. Now, that's not really fair, but that is what is being said. So the MOD has got to take a much bigger view of the whole complaints mechanism for the future. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrep. Now, earlier this year, the former International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell told us he was determined to overturn the government's cuts to foreign aid. Ministers cited the economic impact of the pandemic for the decision to cut the aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5% of national income. That's a cut of nearly £4 billion a year. In South Sudan, where millions are on the brink of famine, Minister Peter Mayam-Majondit warns of devastating consequences. We know that it's so unfriendly and so inhuman for any country to cut its aid at this particular time. We ask ourselves as a government what had gone wrong between us and, and the British government. Well, now a group of Conservative MPs say they have enough support to force ministers to reverse the aid cut from the start of next year. A vote could be staged in the Commons within days and the chairman of the Commons Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood, is among those backing the change. It denies extremism a space to flourish. When we pull out of uh, programmes, let's say, uh, in uh, Nigeria, Boko Haram will be delighted that that happens. When we remove ourselves from programmes in, in Libya as well, Russia will be pleased to fill that vacuum. The same with al-Shabaab uh, in uh, Somalia. So there are huge consequences that we need to explain to the British public as to why this is so important. Jonathan Marcus at the World Food Programme said the cut meant they'd have to take food from the hungry and give it to the starving. And Tobias Elwood's point is that aid spending pays for itself, both in terms of security and global influence. Well, I think Tobias Elwood is quite right. I mean, this uh, reduction in aid was frankly an extraordinary uh, step to be taking, given the huge sums of money 
uh, that have had to be spent on the pandemic here and so on. Yes, of course, uh, savings have to be made somewhere. But this is an extraordinary place to start trying to make those savings. Uh, foreign aid, uh, the aid budget generally has some practical, diplomatic and indeed uh, moral aspects. Uh, the idea that you should be taking away funding for programs in some of the poorest, most desperate parts of the world it is frankly extraordinary. And the fact that you're doing it at a time when you, there is this huge relaunch of Britain overseas, or at least what the government would like to see as a relaunch of Britain, this idea of global Britain, it really beggars belief that they should have taken this really rather a petty step. It, it perhaps was considered to have been a populist step. I'm not at all sure it was a popular step. Uh, and I think more widely, it will have uh, serious ramifications down the road uh, if the uh, money is not restored. And Michael Clark, this is all blown up days before Britain hosts the G7 summit, potentially embarrassing for the government. Yes, uh, it will be very embarrassing. And if they've got Andrew Mitchell and Tobias Elder and Tom Dugentat lined up against them with alliances of, M of MPs around them, I think they're on a loser. And I think Boris Johnson probably knows he's on a loser because he himself said in the Commons, he said, you know, this is a temporary cut. We hope to restore it next year. And then everything they did indicated that it wasn't a temporary cut. And as usual, the prime minister was in his own reality. So I think he is on a loser. And the G7 will really focus this issue because it is strategically incoherent. You know, we can argue whether we should give more or less on foreign aid. But to make the cuts in the places where the cuts are being made of necessity now is strategically incoherent. Make makes no sense in terms of global Britain or in our, our own interests. The, the cuts are all happening in places that matter most to us in terms of preventing further conflict. Finally today, the effort to put right a long-standing wrong in the forces. Last month, the Defence Secretary apologised for the failure to properly commemorate huge numbers of people from around the world who died fighting in Britain's name. Prejudice played a part, Ben Wallace told MPs. Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and the government both at the time and today, I want to apologise for the failures to live up to their founding principles all those years ago and express deep regret that it has taken so long to rectify the situation. Now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is trying to trace the identities of those ignored personnel to make sure they're remembered. As Hannah King reports, that effort is being led by the man whose research uncovered the failings of the past. Some say you only die when you're forgotten. If you were to have asked me at the beginning of the project, you know, you know what, what is it you expect to find, it wouldn't be what we published. Okay, so this is our archive. My name is George Hay. I am the official historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Dr Hay authored the report. He's now part of a tiny team of researchers assembled to begin the colossal task of finding thousands upon thousands who've been forgotten. And he thinks it's possible. If we're saying we're looking for what might be 350,000 names, if we put that into archival terms and you try and visualise that in, in a paper sense, um, it's, it's substantial. But we know now um, from, from recent research that um, probably the largest employer of military labour in East Africa, the Military Labour Bureau, Military Labour Corps, we know that they produced extensive card um, catalogues. We know that they had a ledger system in place during the war. Whether it survives, we don't yet know. But if it does survive, it probably survives in East Africa still, so possibly in Tanzania, possibly in Kenya. Um, if we can find that paperwork, then hopefully we can put some names to those who died. 
Dr Hay will work with research teams, museums and universities around the globe to try to find these forgotten individuals. Even where there is no magic list, there is still hope. Journalist Trabani Basu was also on the report committee. Most of these soldiers were illiterate peasants. They were just people who lived in the hills, who tended goats, and they were all recruited. Those families still live in those villages. You can, you know, fund research grants. There are so many researchers out there. The one thing India has is manpower, you know, universities near these areas. Do research projects, send these people to the villages. It wasn't just the soldiers, it wasn't just the combatants. You had these followers. So you had the cooks, the cleaners, the water carriers. You had young boys as young as 10. They would going there just to knead the dough or just you know, run carrying tea. And they then recorded with just their first names. Sometimes it's not even a name. One, you know, one name mentioned of the followers is Chotu. Chotu means, in Hindi, means somebody small. It's what you just, so we don't even know his name. There's always this need to defend it and say, it is of the day. And that really annoys me because it is not of the day. It's not just the issue of pervasive racism, Dr. Hayes says. What's needed is a complete overhaul of our approach to world wars. I would hope that, that this work shifts some of the focus away from the Western Front. These are global wars and they're not global wars because the world comes to Europe. You know, they're, they're world wars because they're fought across the world and, and you know, this is a really good example of that. So let's stop talking about D-Day, but let's talk about Burma. Let's talk about the two African divisions in Burma. Let's talk about the bulk of the Indian army that fights in Burma. You know, we need to think more about how we tell the story of, of the First World War. The reason that people don't know that Indians fought in the war, that the Africans came, is because it's not taught in the schools. It's not taught in the schools here. It's not taught in the schools in India. I didn't know about it and I grew up in India. I had no idea. There were men in turbans fighting in the trenches. It is, a, you know, something that needs to be corrected. Obviously, you can't pressurize the Indian government, but, uh, you know, here, the UK government, I think it should be part of the syllabus. Um, I don't think these stories should come up only once a month, you know, for Black History Month in October. I think it should be regular. Shabani Basu ending Hannah King's report there. And that's it for this week. Thanks to all this week's guests and to Professor Michael Clark and Jonathan Marcus for joining me throughout the programme. You can listen back to this episode and our entire archive anytime at bfbs.com slash sitrep, where you'll also find links to subscribe to the podcast. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. Until next time, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.